Hi, I'm Candy McNeil, a psychotherapist in Guelph, Ontario, and this is my radio show, Open Minds. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. This show is dedicated to reducing the stigma around mental illness. Often, people with mental illnesses get lumped all together and judged as a group, rather than being seen as the individuals they are. And sometimes we focus way more on their weaknesses and impairments, rather than on their strengths and their gifts. On this show, I'm going to bring you stories from professionals and from people who experience mental illness that I really think will open your mind around what it's actually like to have a brain that works differently. One thing I've learned from my 15 years in the field is that contrary to what you might hear in the media or from misinformed individuals, mental illness is not a sign of weakness or laziness. It doesn't make someone dangerous or stupid. It's not a moral failing or a stain on one's character. And most importantly, it is not a choice or something someone can just, quote, get over. I have met some of the most hardworking, strong, smart, sensitive, and likable people in my office or in the hospital, people I'd enjoy having as a family member, a friend, or a partner. But often, these people feel judged in a very negative way. They feel less than or not good enough because of their mental illness, and they're very afraid that friends, partners, coworkers, roommates, and family members will think less of them, too and try as they might, they can't always recover. In fact, sometimes they don't fully want to because some part of the illness makes them feel good. I know that part is confusing for people who don't have a mental illness. You might ask, if it's really an illness, why wouldn't you want to get over it? I think it can be like smoking or drinking too much. On one hand, you know it's bad for you, but it's also calming. And so one part of you wants to quit while another part of you wants to continue. The ambivalence about quitting can actually be part of the disease. I think that in the same way we don't judge someone who gets leukemia or MS, we also needn't judge someone who gets bipolar or an eating disorder or any other mental illness. If we can be compassionate to people who have an illness in their blood or their liver, then surely we can show understanding to people who have an illness in their brains. Similarly, in the same way that we understand that chemo doesn't always get rid of cancer, we must be able to also understand that treatment isn't always successful for mental illnesses either. And just like the way that no one is racing to start chemotherapy with all of its nasty side effects, many people feel reluctant to start therapy that might make them feel worse before they feel better. Mental illnesses are complex and not fully understood even by doctors and researchers. Our best guess, and honestly, right now that's all it is, our best guess is that mental illnesses are the result of a very complex combination of genetic, biochemical, environmental, and interpersonal factors. The same can be said of some kinds of cancers, and when it comes to those, we would never dream of telling someone, or ourselves if we're the sufferer, to just get over it, or snap out of it, or get better by themselves. If someone is struggling with cancer, we'd encourage that person to see an oncologist and to take powerful drugs like chemotherapy if it might help, and to take time off work or school to let themselves heal. But when it's depression or an anxiety disorder or some other mental illness, some people think they should be able to get better on their own without professional help or medication, and that they should be able to do this on top of work and school and relationships. I wonder why we can't live in a culture where it's just as okay to talk to a therapist as it is to go see a dentist. Why do we feel shame about one and not about the other? Well, the point of this show is to explore those very issues. Some people do struggle with a mental illness, but you might be surprised to learn that many also thrive and succeed. As you listen to my interviews with experts in the field and with people who have mental illnesses or their family members, you'll hear firsthand that mental illnesses don't just hold people back. They sometimes give unexpected gifts and help un individuals develop greater compassion, creativity, tolerance, and drive. Whatever your current beliefs are about mental illness, your own or those in the people around you, I hope you'll listen with an open mind.
Today I'll present the first part of my interview with Dr. Dan Siegel, who is joining me by phone from his office at UCLA. There he is a psychiatrist and who specializes in pediatric uh, child and adolescent um, psychiatry. He has written numerous books. The most recent, I believe, is called Brainstorm, um, and there are many others besides that if you'd like to take a look. Essentially, he talks about how we can better understand our own minds and brains and how that may help us to achieve mental health, mental balance, mental well-being, whatever word you want to use there. So join me now for part one of this interview. Okay, so Dr. Siegel, thank you so much um, for taking the time to meet with me uh, sure. by telephone like this. I had the pleasure of getting to hear you speak when you were in Toronto recently. Yes, um, I'm sorry we couldn't meet in person. It was so hectic. That's quite all right. I understand you're in demand, and I'm so thrilled, actually, to be able to do an interview even this way. And oh, uh, really, the feedback that I heard was quite amazing um, at the conference. For, for listeners who uh, don't know, you were here talking some about your new book. Um, you do a lot of stuff around the brain and mind therapy. wonder if you'd feel comfortable telling people a little bit about what you do. Sure. Well, um, I'm trained in a number of different things. I, I was educated as a physician uh, and then specialized initially in pediatrics and then moved over to psychiatry where um, I became a, a child and adolescent as well as adult psychiatrist. Um, and then I worked uh, being trained as a, a researcher studying parent-child interactions and how they shape the, the mind of the child. Uh, and then I became an educator, um, teaching people to work with children, adolescents, adults, couples, families, in psychotherapy as a psychiatrist. Uh, and then in the beginning of the decade of the brain, back in the 1990s, um, I became very interested in how we could bring science into clinical practice uh, and in understanding parenting, so I um, started synthesizing the different fields of science together uh, with some colleagues to form a field called interpersonal neurobiology, where we basically offer a definition of the mind, what a healthy mind is, what can make a mind not so healthy, and then what we can do to promote well-being in our lives. And that field now has um, about three dozen textbooks that I've overseen the, the editing of, and, um, and I've written a few books myself on different topics related to this field. Whenever I say to a client or when I'm giving a talk and I, I mention the term interpersonal neurobiology, people's eyes get big, almost like I'm saying something, you know, in a foreign language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, actually, it makes a ton of sense. I wonder if you could break it down for someone. What What is interpersonal neurobiology? Sure. Well, the term I made up just to try to embrace everything from the inter, what happens between us, and the personal, so what happens within us. So it, it's sort of that word interpersonal rather than a word, let's say, like social, right. uh, em, embeds in it the idea that there's something happening within with the personal and the between with the inter. And for me, that's exactly where the mind is. The mind is not just up in your head. The mind is fully embodied. That's the withinness of it. And we experience the mind subjectively uh, through an embodiment, through it's literally an embodied experience, but it's also relational. It's happening between each other. It's happening between me and you right now. It happens between ourselves and the planet. 
um, you know, there's a way to think of mental experience as relational that's really exciting and useful. And then the neurobiology was just a term to talk about the kind of empirical, hard science, if you will. Could have called it biology, could have called it science, whatever, but the name stuck with neurobiology. And so it's a field that includes not just neuroscience, but uh, it actually includes all the different disciplines of science from math to physics to psychology and anthropology and sociology and all the different disciplines that we study in academia with carefully disciplined research. Um, Interpersonal neurobiology says basically, what if we combined all sciences into one framework and look for the universal findings, what are called the consilient findings across different disciplines? Could we then come up with some new insights into what let's say being human is all about, and then could we apply it to our lives to bring more health into the world? So that's what we do. What I love about that um, is how it reminds me of that um, old joke about different people touching different part of an elephant, right? Yeah. And someone touching the tail and saying, oh, it's rope, and someone touching the leg and saying it's a tree trunk. And and we're all touching you know, a different part of the same thing, but you have seemed to find a way to bring it all together. And as you say, to really synthesize um, findings from different fields uh, so that it's not like this or that, it's this and that. Is that exactly. fair to say? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a great way to say it. And, you know, I, I always felt like if there was an elephant, uh, it ought to be possible to take all the wisdom from the hard work of the individuals, you know, feeling out their particular part and creating uh, an, an image of the whole. And, of course, once we use words, we're never fully there. But, you know, there is a there is a whole elephant view, and that's what we try to take in interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah, I love how it, it brings together so many things in trying to uh, explain something as complicated as a human being, right? Which just, it's it seems to me sometimes silliness to try and boil it down to one facet uh, while ignoring the others. Yeah, um, exactly. As you talk about that, I, mean, I, I also had the opportunity to hear you speak for the first time. I think it might have been 2003. I want to say, in Boston, and uh, I fully admit I'm not a morning person, and you were giving a talk at like 8.30 in the morning, and and no, don't be, because I was so riveted, and I'm like, how can I be riveted? Oh, you got up. Oh, I totally got up. (laughs) I got up, I I listened, and honestly, you know how they say sometimes when someone talks, it's like a light bulb goes off in your head? I felt like I was in front of the paparazzi, like it was like flashbulbs. You know, you were you were describing the components of the brain. You were describing concepts of the mind. You were bringing that not only into the research piece. This was a, an eating disorders conference, I want to say, maybe in, in Boston. Um, not only the research piece, but also as a clinician, how you could bring that all together. And... I still have the notes from that talk, actually, and have used it frequently when I'm working with people to help them understand not only mental wellness, but also when mental health doesn't go the way we thought. And I wondered if I could get you to talk a little bit about that today. Um, the, The focus of this show is really to try and reduce the stigma that exists around mental illness. And, you know, you've been doing this for such a long time. You are very, very knowledgeable, both as a, a researcher and a clinician. Um, you, I wonder what your thoughts are about why we have this stigma around mental illness in particular. 
Yeah, well, it's such a great question, um, and thank you for inviting me to uh, join this important mission about clarifying that. You know, I guess what I would start with is that the way we live in these bodies we have uh, means that our mind is going to be shaped by the embodiment, how energy and information flows through our body, right. and also how it flows among us. So to start with the internal part of that, the nervous system has a way of uh, coming up with um, what are called uh, mental models mm-hmm. or these schema that are basically ways we summarize uh, patterns of repeated experience. So we those repeated experiences teach us what to expect when you drop a ball, it's going to go down. Right. Um, when you greet someone, they say hello, or you know, different things like that. You know, our expectations are shaped by what we've experienced in the past. When you combine those expectations with the brain's kind of fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. then what you get is a an internal set of processes that can help us begin to understand stigma. In, in that, if someone is different from what you expect, one of the initial responses is to get frightened, especially if their mm. behavior is not predictable. Right. Uh, the brain is a kind of prediction machine. It wants to predict things in order to uh, conquer them, in a sense, to be safe, to predict what's going to happen so you can guarantee your survival. So that drive for certainty, um, when someone is different from the norm, different from the average, different from the typical, different from the expected, those are all synonyms, you know, we can have a negative response to them. And so I think stigma comes when we uh, we see someone with a disfigurement right. in their body, uh, when we see someone limping, and we see someone who is reminding us of that which we don't want to be ourselves, let's say vulnerable or hmm. hurt or, you know, carrying the 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 traumas of the past, you know, someone who's lost their leg in a, in a war, you know, we, we, it's a cringing because we identify with the person and immediately push the person away, you know, so, so, you know, that's the first thing to say. From a relational part of the mind, you know, I think we live in a, in a set of relationships that have, have certain things built into them about the way we're supposed to be. And, People with uh, challenges to mental well-being, let's say with people with schizophrenia or with with, uh, manic depressive illness or depression or autism or obsessive compulsive disorder, you can go on and on. Um, The label mental illness uh, and the labeling, I think, puts someone with maybe uh, the extreme of what is in the range of possibility so it's out of what was expected. So you don't, anyone can have a bad day. Right. You, we don't usually expect someone to be sitting in bed for two or three weeks without getting out of bed because they feel so terrible in depression, let's say. And so when someone does that, of course, it's different from what we expect. And so we label it as bad to sort of push it away from us. Hmm. Um, you know, any of us can feel a bad day, but but to be so disabled, um, that's the first thing. It's just we push people away. But the second thing is that I think 
the the mind part of a mental challenge and what's called a mental illness mm-hmm. is really frightening for people yeah and it may not be known by your listeners but you know in the field of mental health people don't have a definition of the mind i mean we do in our field but besides interpersonal neurobiology the only definition of the mind you'll find is that the mind is brain activity right. which is just not the complete story it's part of the story but it's not the complete story so when you realize the mind also includes your subjective experience, it's very frightening for people to think that an individual they're seeing can't rely on their own mind. That's a great point, actually. Mm -hmm. Actually, as you're saying that, I was thinking about how I've I've never thought about it in those terms, but how people do want to push it away and say, oh, that couldn't happen to me. Right, that couldn't happen to me because if I lost my mind, I mean, literally, whatever the mind is, even Mm -hmm. most people have a definition of it, you know there's an inner subjective sense that gives you balance and ballast, and it gives you a way to connect, and it gives you coherence across time and a history and allows you to plan for the future. All that stuff is the mind. When your mind goes, all that goes, and so for you to see someone else where that's gone, and you don't, you know, have professional training or you don't have kind of an awareness beyond just it being scary, the natural response to your fear is to run away right. or get angry at the people. Right. I, I find myself that there's a tendency, I've even seen it myself when I had kids who were very young, and I've seen it in lots of other people, that when someone else reminds you of your own vulnerability, if you can't just get them out of your eyesight or push them away, you actually get angry at them. Huh. That's very honest of you to acknowledge, and I, I think you just hit it perfectly. That, um, that's what it is. That's the response we see. People get, uh, I don't know if you, the analogy I've used before is if you had a broken arm, everybody runs towards you to sign your cast, right? But when, when there's something wrong with your mind, it's like people are mad at you, or they're like upset with you, or why can't you just get over it? Yeah, it's like some weakness of you, or you know, you didn't, you didn't get strong enough parenting, or. You know, which is so wrong. And, you know, what I think the part for the person who's getting angry uh, is that they're, they're um, not going deep inside themselves to say, wow, this is a fellow human being who's had something happen to them. Therefore, since I'm also a human being, that thing which is happening to them, they're hallucinating, they're depressed, they're in, in the middle of compulsions and obsessions, uh, you know, they are so now unable to feel good about what's happening in this moment. I could get that way, too, because I'm also a human being. That doesn't surface. It just goes to, I'm mad at them. You know, I can't, I, I, I don't like the way this feels. This is really, irri- they're irritating to me. They're, you know. So I think what we need to do is educate people right. from the inside out. Right. Which isn't just say, okay, this is schizophrenia and this is autism and this is, no, 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 no. Say, you are a human being. There's seven billion of us, and there are seven billion ways to be in the world, and that's along a huge um, rainbow of experiences that we have that are many, many colors. And some days may be really harder than others for certain people. Some people may be in the little middle of that rainbow. Some people may be at one end, some people at the other end. But we're all a part of the seven billion strong family, and each person is unique. And so if you see someone who's really not functioning well, like I had a friend whose daughter was in a dorm and she got extremely 
not just depressed, but sort of just stopped thinking clearly. And everyone in the dorm made fun of her. Mm. She was totally stigmatized. They actually made YouTube videos that they put up mocking her. Oh, no. And ultimately it turned into a disastrous outcome, you know. But when we, when we looked in retrospect at what had happened, no one in the dorm, not the dorm RA, the residency uh, administrator, uh, not the, the person on the floor, not the kids on the floor with her, nobody was willing to stand up and say, wow, this is a person who's suffering. Let me align myself with them and see what they need and get them support. Instead, they just mocked her. Right. So, you know, I, I mean, I, what we need to realize is that even the people who are mocking were human too, but we need to try to stop that kind of inhumane behavior. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I've been struck by whenever I've heard you talk, Dr. Siegel, or, or when I've read your books, um, is how um, accepting and compassionate and non-judgmental you you are able to express these things, how, how non-judgmentally you're able to express these things is what I meant to say there. And, and I think that you saying, you know, look, it's another person like you, and it's okay to face your vulnerability, and we're all part of the same continuum. It's not an us versus them, like you're sick and I'm well. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, this is why, you know, at the end of this book, Brainstorm, I just wrote, which, you know, tries to appeal to adolescents or any adults who care for them, you know, but the adolescents themselves, to give them a book that empowers them to say, look, you know, people call adolescents crazy. I was just doing an interview with a French magazine, and they said, in France, you know, we call it the stupid age, you know, and, <laughs> and your book says they're not. So I said, no, they're not stupid. They're unbelievably courageous and creative. Right. And there are things out there, that books that call them crazy. No, they're not crazy. The brain is remodeling. When you understand that, you know, it really is it's a moment for us to celebrate being human, but also support people who aren't meeting with our expectations. Right. Like if my friend's daughter had somebody on that dorm room who would have just said, wow, you know, you're a human being who's in pain. Let me help you. The outcome would have been totally different. Absolutely, for both people, right? For for yeah. your friend's daughter and also for the person who helped. Yeah, that's right. Right, there would that's been, right. There would have been growth in. So we need to them. support each other, learning this, and you know, I think the idea of stigma with mental illness. Um, is so important. I, I, I... One of the things I find is that um, as a therapist, a client will come in and for the moment that they're sitting with me, they're able to, you know, move past some of that shame, move past some of that feeling of there's something, you know, quote unquote wrong with me, but then they go back out into the world and they feel that all over again. And it's sort of like, how can we create a bigger environment where people don't feel so ashamed of, you know, a mind that doesn't work perfectly or, or as you said, what we expect it to and what I love is the language you put it in that makes it easy for people to grasp I wonder if you'd feel comfortable sharing um, you have a I've heard you say that you know most symptoms of mental illness as we see them in the DSM or whatever can kind of be seen as the result of either too much or too little control right and you talk about I don't remember your name for it but it's like a river of integration balance. integration yeah. right can you talk a little bit about that Sure. Well, thank you for bringing that up. You know, um, in all these uh, journeys of trying to synthesize science and clinical practice and education and attachment, all that stuff, 
you know, there's one principle that emerges when you kind of see across all these different pursuits of understanding the truth, and that is this process called integration. It's a simple word, and it means taking different elements and linking them. Mm -hmm. So in a relationship, it would be honoring differences between you and someone you're in a relationship with, and then promoting compassionate communication as a linkage. In the brain, it might be, you know, uh, having the left side and the right side, which are differentiated, so they're specialized, they're unique, they're able to be somewhat, uh, you know, whole and autonomous on their own, but then you link these different differentiated parts to each other, so the whole is actually greater than the sum of its parts. That's where that comes from, integration. So integration is not blending. It's actually more like a fruit salad than a smoothie. So I'm going to leave my interview on that note with Dr. Siegel today. I found that comment he made there hilarious about how integration is like a fruit salad and not a fruit smoothie. We don't get blended into one thing that is uh, hard to to tell one piece from another, but instead a bunch of uh, different things that come together to make something even better than they would on their own. Um, That's one of many analogies he uses to help us understand our very, very complex brains and minds and um, how our relationships with each other, with the planet, and with ourselves um, affect mental well-being. If you found this interesting, I hope that you'll join me again next week for part two of my interview with Dr. Dan Siegel. So that's my show for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Open Minds. I'd like to thank my editor, Craig, without whom these shows wouldn't be possible. If you've missed any part of this, or if you want to listen again or share with someone else, please visit my website at whatseatingyou.com. That's all one word, whatseatingyou.com, and click on the podcast link where you can find this and all previous shows. You can also find the show on the archives page at cfru.ca. Or you can subscribe to Open Minds on iTunes and be notified whenever a new show is available. I would really love to hear what you liked or didn't like about today's show and welcome suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Please send those to my email, which is openminds at cfru.ca. That's openminds with an S at cfru.ca. Please know, though, that I may not be able to respond to all emails personally, and that I definitely cannot respond to those asking for help or advice with a specific mental health problem. For those, I strongly encourage you to put aside your fear of stigma and see your doctor, try a therapist, visit the local emergency room, or call your nearest crisis hotline. And if you're concerned for someone around you, please try not to judge and instead encourage them to seek out the treatment they deserve. Remember, if you wouldn't hesitate to visit the dentist when your teeth are causing you pain, then you needn't hesitate to seek treatment when it's your brain that's causing you pain. I'm Candy McNeil. Please join me again next week here on Open Minds. (laughs) 